Leah, thank you so much uh, for reading that. Thank you so much for the emotion with which you read it. Um, this is a weighty passage. Um, I'm going to jump about four paragraphs ahead just after the reading of the text, and, and just we're just going to dive in. Um, this has been a confusing week, like really confusing. So it's Christmas time. Uh, this is joy, and this is happiness, and, and this is this is light and life, and, and this is all things wonderful and amazing and good. And this week, I have been in this passage every day. Death, horror, not life and lightness and gladness and joy. And, and as I've talked with people over the last couple of weeks um, that pray for me regularly and ask me when I'm preaching next, and I tell them I'm preaching, and they're like, hey, what are you preaching on? I'm like, crucifixion. And they kind of look at me like this, and they're like, hey, man, don't, doesn't your church know that it's Christmas time? <laughs> and, uh, and I say, yeah, we, we, we absolutely know that, that it's Christmas time. We celebrate that. Uh, we're, <laughs> we're, we're grateful. We're grateful for that. It, it means a lot to us at, at Harvest. Um, and as you guys know, it means a lot to me personally. Um, as I've said before, kind of joking around, Thanksgiving is my, is my favorite single day holiday. Christmas is my favorite time of the year. I, I love this every year, these four to five weeks and, and what they mean for us and, and, and what it communicates. I love that we have an entire world that pauses to celebrate whether they want to or not. They still have to. They're somewhat forced to celebrate this deity that they don't even want to believe in and, and they have to pause and everywhere it's somewhere they're going to be confronted with it and um it, it it is delightful and yet it is hard and it is heavy and and there is no way to avoid the cross at christmas and the reason why is because to do that would be to forget the entire reason why jesus was born in the first place our, our savior was born to die he was born to die. You know, I, we, we like to talk a lot about the birth of Christ at Christmas, and we should. I mean, it's what the time of year is there for to celebrate, and yet we do ourselves a disservice when we forget the cross at Christmas. And we like to compartmentalize things. It's how our brains work. We, we like to separate things out in a nice and neat and little tidy boxes and we, we like to keep things decently and in order, and there's a place for that. I'm, I'm not arguing or making a case for utter chaos. Um, Amber and I have five kids to a level. Yes, that's our everyday life. We would literally be destroyed if our life was chaotic. So uh, I'm all about order, and yet we have to understand that, that God does not exist in neat and tidy little boxes that we can compartmentalize and make sense of. He's given us a little bit of ability to make sense of who he is and to make sense of how he works and to make sense of his will and his ways. And we need to be thankful that we get at least a little bit and not be angry that he doesn't give us everything. And at a time of year like this, when we typically like to think about birth as something that you celebrate and death is something that you grieve over, we, we do like to naturally keep those things separated and divided. We don't like for those streams to, to swim together. Uh, j just this week, great tragedy with, with people that, that Amber and I know, 36 weeks, pregnant, baby dies, born stillborn. Two older girls in the family, this was a baby boy. It, it doesn't make sense. 
It, it doesn't make sense. And yet, it's at the cross where this does begin to make sense. And, and, and it's why I love when we sing the Christmas songs that we sing, because I do feel we do a good job of, of declaring the goodness of Christ, the, the full gospel. <laughs> Not just songs that declare that he was born, but, but songs that declare his purpose in coming. Right? And, and one of my favorites is, God rest ye, merry gentlemen. God rest ye, merry gentlemen. Let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day. And we're happy about that. And we're, we're thrilled with joy about that. But, but why was he born? To save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. Because, friends, that's our comfort and that's our joy. It's great to celebrate the birth. He, he came to die. And so today, as we, as we dive into this passage, I, I do pray that we, that we feel and understand the weightiness of it. And, and I pray that we feel and understand the, the horror of it. It is horrific. <laughs> but I do pray that we leave here comforted today. And I know it sounds weird, but I promise it's, it's not out of place. Because our Savior went through all that he went through for his joy and for our good. And, and I feel like the last few times that I have preached just the... <laughs> The way the dice roll, I've had to offer caveats at the beginning of the message, and I'm going to do so again today. And uh, because the passage we're looking at today is hard to hear, and it is difficult to dive into, and I'm going to go ahead and offer my outline to you all today, because today we're going to look at the king abused, we're going to look at the king antagonized, and we're going to look at the king abandoned. And these are all things that so many in our world face today, and, and, and I'm not naive, I know that there are those of you in this room, there are those of you across the hall, there are those of you that may be watching right now, and you have been abused. Physically, sexually, verbally, any number of ways, you've been abused. You've been antagonized. You've been abandoned. You've had people walk out on you. You have people leave you. You have people completely and totally walk away from you and, and destroy any hope of relationship with you. And so first, by, by way of caveat, if that is you and, and you have gone through that, I want you to know how genuinely heartsick and sorry I am that that is your story. I, I, I hope you know that. It, it, is, it, it should grieve everyone if that is your story. And I pray that what we read and go over today as we read these verses, I pray that it does not bring you increased and more intense pain. I really pray that it doesn't. I, I pray that instead it brings you comfort. I pray that it brings you great comfort. And I know that that is hard to hear, but I, I believe that, that Jesus will do that because there is comfort in knowing that Jesus endured severe abuse, both physical and verbal. There is comfort in knowing that he was abandoned at his hour of greatest need, completely and utterly abandoned. And, and I say that so you will know that you have a Savior who can sympathize, but even more than giving a wink and a nod and a subtle pat on the back, you have a, save, a Savior who, who can empathize, a Savior who can comfort, and a Savior who can enter into whatever your worst is because he endured your worst and so much more. And I will offer the end of the, of, of the message at the beginning as well, because we desperately need some hope right now. And I know this may seem disjointed. Why do you get to the conclusion before you've even begun? Because we need to. <laughs> That's why. 
We, we really need hope before we go through this text today. Why must we read this today and dive deep in this today? Because there can be no tidings of comfort and joy without the cross of Christ. We will have no comfort. We will have no joy without the cross. There can be no peace and hope without the cross. There can be no removal of fear and, and threat of being cut off forever without the cross. So today, as we make our way up the hill with him, we do so with hope. With great, great hope. So let's dive into our text together today. Open your Bibles, if you're not already there, Mark 15, verses 16 through 33. And we're going to jump straight into our first point. And this is, we're going to look at the king abused. And to look at this, we need to go back to Matthew's text from last, last Sunday. And we, we need to connect this here. Verse 16 is the playing out of verse 15. Verse 15 is kind of a summary narrative. And then verse 16 and 17 and 18 is actually the playing out of how that happened. This is what the soldiers actually did to Jesus. Pilate handing Jesus over to be scourged was horrific. It was horrific. I'm, I'm not going to sensationalize anything that we look at in these verses today. I hope you really know that. If anything, I'm going to undersell them. And I think that actually does us a disservice. And Matthew mentioned last week all that that entailed. And I'm not going to go into detail, but I am going to mention it again here. This would have involved Jesus being stripped naked tied to a post, and then beaten with a whip of leather, bone, and metal over and over and over again. And it's important for you to know that most people did not even survive the scourging. Most people didn't make it out of that room to be crucified. They died with their hands tied to the post. And I'm not going to ask you to get a mental picture of what that might have looked like. Because honestly, I don't think we really could even grasp how horrible this, this act was. Most accounts of scourging say that it wouldn't just have been the back that was whipped. But that this whip was so long with multiple strands that when it was thrown, that it would wrap around the entire midsection of the individual. Not just hitting the back. And I mention this again because this is all one account here and because it makes what they do next even more horrible. I want you to look with me there at verse 16 of Mark 15. It says, And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. The entire battalion is there. And, and I want us to understand and do get a mental picture of this. This wouldn't have been a handful of people in a room with him. An entire battalion would have been upwards of 600 trained Roman soldiers. Men that knew how to punish. Men that knew how to bring pain. And this is what Jesus is facing. And all of them are there and they're all participating. And they're not just taunting Jesus with their words. No, they are going to be physically punishing him beyond what even Pilate asked them to do. Look at verse 17. And they clothed him with a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. 
think we can get the symbolism of the purple cloak, and we'll get to that more in a moment, but think back to the scourging. Think, think about the open wounds on Christ's body, and now think of clothing being placed on top of that. Think about you when you get a little scrape, a, a bad or a hard scrape, and then fabric hits that. And then fabric is removed from that. That is never pleasant. And now imagine that this is your entire midsection, not just a small little scrape. And all this is in mockery of the claim against Jesus, people being the sign of of royalty and dignity and honor. And here is Jesus, stripped naked, body battered in an open wound, the exact opposite of dignity and honor. And it wasn't just the cloak. Next we see the crown. And, and I don't know the last time you got pricked by a thorn, um, but I really don't enjoy it. Um, in our front flower bed, we, we have these small, tiny little vines that have these tiny little thorns that when they prick me, I say things that should not be uttered in front of anyone. And they're the kind that are tiny to get under the skin, and then they kind of stay there, and they cause it to throb, and they hurt really bad. you got to go get the tweezers, and you got to fish it out, and then the tweezers make it go, like, deeper into your finger or wherever you got pricked, so much so that you feel like it's going inside your body, like really painful. But this was not a small little thorn on a, a weepy little vine. No, these were long, and they were thick, and they were savage. And notice that they don't just set this crown on Jesus' head. No, they, they place it and they push it down. They did not want any chance of this being removed or falling off of this king. And then they start to mock him. They salute him and mock him by saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Now remember, this isn't someone getting jumped by a handful of people in a back alley. Now there's 600 trained Roman guards there all shouting, all mocking, all participating in the abuse of the Savior. And were it not enough that they scourge him and mock him, they do even more. As we already read in verse 19, they they strike his head with a reed, and they spit on him, and they kneel before him in fake homage. And I've struggled this week to find words to capture this, because any words that I use would fail to convey the gravity of just how horrible this was. This this wasn't just humiliation and abuse. It was far beyond that, yet those are the only words we have to convey what is happening here. The reed here would have been been like a stick. It it would have been very much whip-like. And its mocking purpose was in place of a king's scepter, but they didn't place it in Jesus' hands to mock him. No, they, they used it to strike his face over and over and over again. And finally, when they had enough, they led him out to be crucified. But you need to know and understand this. This wasn't just him walking out of a room to go to a cross to be crucified. No, there's a journey that he has to take, and it is not a short journey but before they do this, they, they remove the robe from his wounds and they put his own clothes back on him. But they do not remove the thorns. 
And this journey they lead him on is about a half a mile. And it's a half mile, not on a straight, smooth road, but on a very narrow, windy, rough road. And this journey would be difficult for anyone, no matter how fit you were. But think about Jesus and think about the condition that he is in. And for this journey, you had to carry your own cross. That was part of the deal. It was part of the punishment. You had to carry your your own cross. Now, this wouldn't have been the entire cross like we sometimes see where you could put your weight under it and drag it along. No, this would have just been the cross beam and your arms would have been tied to it. So you would have to feel and bear the full weight of it. And Jesus could not physically do this. His human flesh to the point of exhaustion, to the point of weariness, could not bear the weight of that. Remember, he has been beaten in a way that kills many men before they are crucified. And this is where we see the humanity of our Savior and the humanity of our King. This is where we see flesh like flesh and all that he's enduring and all that he is suffering. His body is failing. You need to understand and and feel that here. His body is failing. But it is not going to fail yet. And since Jesus cannot get the cross up the hill, they find someone who will help him. Look at verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Now this is interesting. And, And it's interesting because... When Mark writes, he writes with such urgency that he typically leaves people anonymous. Remember, Mark's entire purpose, his entire aim, his entire focus is to get us to the cross as quickly as humanly possible. He, he knows what is ultimate and what is the centerpiece, and he wants to get us there. And because of that, he leaves out details that other gospel writers include. There are details that Matthew and Luke and John have that Mark doesn't have because he's writing with urgency and he's writing fast. The cross is ultimate for him. He typically doesn't mention names. We've seen this numerous times throughout the Gospel of Mark. People and encounters that Jesus has that we would look and be like, I would love to know the individual's name. Mark gives us nothing. But here he gives us names. Why? Well, we don't know for sure. Truthfully, we we don't know. But most believe it is because these names would have been familiar to his audience. These would have been men that these readers would have known. And so the hearing of their name would be something that would encourage them with gladness. And this is the first glimpse we get of the saving power of Jesus at his worst human moment. From all accounts, Simon was not in the group that followed Jesus. He was not in the group that followed Jesus around. He would have been a diaspora Jew now living in Africa, a Jew from the dispersion who is now living in Africa that is only back in Jerusalem because it's Passover time. And here, he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. But by God's providence, at the right place, at the right time. And you need to know and understand here that Simon did not have a choice. He did not have a choice whether he was going to participate or not. The word compelled there, it means to force or press into military or civil matters. He could not opt out of this task. Well, I assume he could have, but it would have meant much pain for him. And his participation leads to the saving of his life. 
The Rufus mentioned here is believed to be the same Rufus mentioned by Paul in Romans 16. And with Mark's audience being believers in Rome, that would seem to make, such, that would seem to make some sense. But whether by choice or by force, Simon helps our Savior, and in turn, it changes the trajectory of his life. And Simon helps Jesus carry his cross all the way up to Calvary, all the way up to Golgotha, where the crucifixion will take place. And here they would take Jesus and fasten the cross beam that was carried to the post of the cross, and they would fix Jesus to it by spikes. You need to know and understand. I say spikes, not nails, because nails do a disservice to the description of what was done to our Savior. And in the only act of mercy the Romans would do, they offered those being crucified wine mixed with myrrh. This was a sedative and a, and a pain reliever meant to ease the pain of those who were suffering. And this week as I've read this, I cannot imagine how this would help at all with the horrific pain of those who were being crucified. But look at verse 23. And they offer him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Christ refuses this offer that they give him. They offer Jesus a cup of comfort. But he refuses and takes the cup of full suffering instead. Please don't miss this. Do, do not miss this. Jesus endured all that needed to be endured and more. Why? So that you and I would not have to. When offered a chance to escape the pain, to mask the pain, to avoid the pain, Jesus refuses. And he refuses for us. And friend, I don't know what pain you are enduring. I don't know what suffering is plaguing your life. I don't know what horrors are staring you in the face. But what I do know is that there is a Savior who knows. There's a Savior who knows. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 4, verses 15 through 16, put it this way. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Even when relief of pain would have aided him most, he entered deeper into the pain so that he can enter into your pain with his mercy and with his grace. And then in verse 24, we see the last part of the abuse of our king. They, they strip him naked again. Now, whether they left him with a loincloth or not, that doesn't really matter. Modesty in the Jewish world was of utmost importance, and, and this was part of the horror of crucifixion. The embarrassment of having yourself fully shown and displayed for all to see. Laid bare and open, fully exposed. This was abusive. And this was excessive. And Jesus endured it all. And then this leads us to our next point, and that is we're going to see the king antagonized. The king antagonized. And now we see the verbal assault on Jesus from people he doesn't know and from the ones who have sought to make sure that this day would come. Look at verses 29 through 32. 
And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down for the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Now where he was crucified was set on a hill on a main thoroughfare. Anyone walking along this road or around this road would see this happening. This was another act of Roman treachery. This was crime deterrent in their view. Do you see what happens? Do you you see what happens? Yeah, we'll do this to you as well. And we see the charge brought against Jesus up above him, king of the Jews. The Roman reason for Jesus' crucifixion was treason. His charge was a threat to overthrow Rome. Matthew has covered that over the last couple of weeks. And the passers-by begin to verbally assault him. The word derided here is an intense word. It's an intense word. It means to blaspheme, to insult, to slander or curse. These aren't subtle taunts here. These aren't little poking jabs here. This is full-out venom and angst at Jesus. And they are mocking his very nature. They are not mocking his humanity. They are mocking his divinity. Save yourself, you who said you can save others. And verse 31 is where I've gotten outright angry this week. Because we see that the religious leaders, I mean, they are absolute cowards. They, they, are, they are so cowardly. As we have moved through this text, and we have seen time and time again, where, where they are wanting to move towards Jesus, and because of fear, they run and hide. They, they want to move towards him, and then they are afraid. They say a word to him. He answers back and they cower in fear. And now they come to him. When he is helpless, when he is on the cross, now they bring their anger and their venom. Even in trying to get the sign and the charge above him changed. We learn in one of the other gospels that they go to Pilate and they say, no, he is not the king of the Jews. You need to change that to say he claimed to be the king of the Jews. Cowardice. They won't even own what they have done to him. And Pilate, actually doing the right thing, says to them, no. It says what it says. That is the charge. That is who he is. And what they say to him is hollow. Absolutely hollow in how they taunt him. First, he could save himself. We need to know that. And he could have destroyed him. The actual charge that they're bringing against him, trust me, they did not want Jesus to come off of that cross. And even if, they w- even if he would have, they would not have believed. And the irony here is that they didn't know that Jesus must stay on the cross. He has to endure the cross so that he would save others. And if that weren't enough, the two actual criminals, the true 
criminals that are on the cross with him, they begin to mock him as well. And this is prophecy being fulfilled from the Old Testament, that he would be numbered with the transgressors. This is him being numbered with the transgressors. And they mock him as well. But it is here again that we see the mercy of Jesus at this moment of weakness. Mark doesn't record this, but it must be mentioned here. And Luke tells us a little bit more about these two. In Luke's account, there is one of the two who even in the mocking and after the mocking, he sees and he understands who Jesus is and he is saved that day. Listen to Luke 23, 39 through 43. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, Do you not fear God since you were under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, For we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And and this, this absolutely gripped my heart this week. Here's a wonderful picture of what Jesus is enduring And Jesus is saving even while on the cross. And not just saving, saving someone who was actively mocking him just a short time before. Friends, don't miss the hope in that. Don't miss the hope in that. No matter how you have thought of Jesus, no matter what you have wrongly believed about Jesus, No matter how you have worked against Jesus, no matter what you have said about Jesus, Jesus is there with words of compassion for those who repent and believe. He is there with arms and hands of mercy and grace for those who will repent and believe. I don't know what compelled this man to change his understanding of who Jesus was, but something about seeing Jesus on that cross caused this man to know the the kindness and mercy of the Savior. And that kindness and mercy is for all of us here today as well. And finally today, we see our last point. We see the king abandoned. And I will only touch on this briefly because Matthew has the bulk of this context and meaning next week. But look with me at verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour This is actually a prophecy being fulfilled from Amos 8, 9, and 10. Let me read that to you. It says, And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only son. And the end of it like a bitter day. And here in our text today, we see this coming to fruition. Here we see the mourning of the only son. The only one who could pay the penalty that our sin brings upon us. The only one who could offer the sacrifice that our sin required. The only one who is capable of doing all that is needed to be done to save hell-bound sinners like all of us in here today. And he did this with joy. He did this with joy. You need to know something. I don't know how that makes sense. 
like straight up, got no clue how that makes sense. I have no capacity to understand joy like that. Joy for me rests on whims and and wishes, and for our Savior, it rested on suffering and death. The writer of Hebrews tells us this in Hebrews, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand, the throne of God. For the joy that was in front of him, he endures what we find shameful. And he scorns that shame. He mocks that shame. Those who shamefully mocked him, he mocks the shame of what they're mocking. For the joy that is before him. And what is he doing at the right hand of the Father? He is making intercession for the saints. He is pleading the case for those that are his. Hebrews 7, 25 through 28. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men and their weakness is high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than a law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Friends, he lives to make intercession for you and for me if we are his. It is his delight. He is at the right hand of the Father, and he is pleading before the Father, Father, look at them and look at me. Look at what I did for them. Look at how I bled for them. Look at how I suffered and died for them. They are yours. They are mine. It is his joy. It is his joy. And all of this because of the cross. But to do this, he must face the utter loneliness that our sin would place upon him. With the father turning away from him. I've mentioned this before, my my favorite Puritan author author is a guy named Richard Sibbs, and in his book, The Bruised Reed, he captures the heart of what Christ endured in a beautiful quotation that I'd like to share with you. It is lengthy, and so I would just ask you to, to lock in and track with me here as we come to the end. As Christ did in his example to us, whatever he charges us to do, so he suffered in his own person whatever he calls us to suffer so that he might the better learn to relieve and pity us in our sufferings. In his abandonment in the garden and on the cross, he was content to be without that unspeakable comfort which the presence of his Father gave, both to bear the wrath of the Lord for a time for us, and likewise to know the better how to comfort us in our greatest difficulties and sufferings. God sees fit that we should taste of that cup of which his son drank so deep that we might feel a little what sin is and what his son's love was. 
But our comfort is that Christ drank the dregs of the cup for us. And he will comfort us so that our spirits may not utterly fail under that little taste of his displeasure which we may feel. He became not only a man but a curse, a man of sorrows for us. He was broken that we should not be broken. He was troubled that we should not be desperately troubled. He became a curse that we should not be accursed. Whatever may be wished for in an all-sufficient comforter is all to be found in Christ. So how do we respond to this? We contemplate the horrors of the Savior's sacrifice. And then we share in the joy of what he endured. We contemplate the horrors of the cross. There is no more horrific thing than that. We contemplate that horror so that we can share in Christ's joy. The abuse that he endured for us. The antagonization that he endured for us. The abandonment he endured for us. Why? To save us all from Satan's power because we had gone astray. And this is our comfort. And this is our joy. Let's pray. Father, we... We, we marvel in humility at this passage, Father. We marvel in humility at this cross. Father, this is, this is what we deserve. This is what we are worthy of. This is what we rightly bring on ourselves. And yet, Father, in your love and in your mercy and in your grace and in your sovereignty, and in your wisdom, Father, you, you send your son instead to take the scorn and to take the shame and to take the suffering and to endure for joy so that through faith and repentance we could share in that. May we be humbled by that today. May we be moved by that today. May we treasure that today. In Christ's name. Amen.